starting, starting in verse 33 of chapter 21, and we'll continue down through verse 15 of chapter 22. Rather long text. And before we jump into this text, as you're turning and hearing at the same time, I want to remind you what exactly it is that we're looking at. Because this text is going to require something of us. It's going to require a little bit more effort from us because the fact is, as we come to this text, even more than texts in the New Testament, as foreigners, uh, as cultural foreigners, and as chronological foreigners. Because we're so far removed from this text in a multitude of ways. We see what God's given here in the Book of the Covenant is a civil code, a civil law code. And it's a law code for an ancient people, for a a people whose society was uh, really all about raising flocks and herds and farming. Not stuff that we probably do on a daily basis here in California. Some maybe. (laughs) But more than that, this society is so far removed because of their ancientness. They did not have modern technology, modern conveniences. They did not have modern economics and banking. They did not have modern court system or a police force or any of that stuff, or a prison system. They did not know democracy as we know it. There was no separation between church and state. All of these things make this text and this law code a little bit strange to us, a little bit foreign to us. And so we need to work harder. And we need to work on um, resisting the temptation to what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, right? that impulse of modern people to feel like we have nothing to learn from an ancient people or an ancient text. And we have help in that because we know that this is God's holy word. And so there is something that God wants to teach us. We can remind ourselves as we come to this text that humanity has not really changed, even if culture has changed. Human beings have not really changed. And we can also remind ourselves that our God has not changed. His moral character has not changed. And so, though we have to take account of the difference culturally, and we have to take account of the difference from Old Covenant to New Covenant, we can also recognize that as we do this, that this text is God's word, and it is and it remains a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to guide us, to give us wisdom. It is good. And so, let's come to this text right now with some humility and some curiosity to see what God has to say to us in it. So beginning in verse 33 of Exodus 21, hear God's word. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, 
he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has done nothing, if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his field, if his own field, and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make, restitution, make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we come to you now when we need to hear you speak to us. So we ask for your Holy Spirit, Lord. And we pray that you would give us help as we come to grow in wisdom, to learn from your word. Help us to know how to apply it to our lives and what you have here to teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we've just read, this very long passage, kind of a tedious passage, what we've just read essentially is laws surrounding the application of the Eighth Commandment, depending on how you count the commandments. The Eighth Commandment is the command against theft in all of its various forms. And so what these case laws are, are really dealing with all of the messy situations that can happen to possessions that are related to the Eighth Commandment to theft. And so we know that possessions are important, and we know that in relationships, possessions and strife over possessions, arguing over possessions, 
can break down relationships, has the, has the potential to break down relationships. We know that this kind of thing is the second leading cause of divorce. Arguments, funny, money problems, strife over possessions. And so also in Israel's society, in this covenant community, God knows that arguments over possessions has the potential to bring division and threatens the unity of his people in the land. And so he gives them these laws to guide them in wise application of the Eighth Commandment. And that's what we are, what's incumbent on us to do today is to glean the wisdom principles of these laws for our own context, in our own New Covenant community context. And so to that end, we're going to see, we're going to look at three things today. We'll consider property and possessions, number one. Number two, we'll consider wisdom and restitution. And number three, law and spirit. And what we're doing in these points, just to give you a heads up, is we're looking at really the underlying principle in the first point, property and possessions, the underlying principle that undergirds the Eighth Commandment and all these various laws. And in the second point, we're looking at really the text itself and all of the issues that surround all the difficulties of strife and how to really respond to strife around possessions and the loss of possessions and in the second point. And then in the third point, we're going to see really what the law, how the law comes to its fullest expression in the new covenant and how it applies most directly to us, how we ought to relate to our possessions as new covenant believers. And so let's look at the first point now, property and possessions. What stands behind the Eighth Commandment is the truth that people are entitled to the fruits of their labor and that people are entitled to their wages and what can be earned justly, what can be obtained by those wages. And so we're entitled to, according to God's word, personal property. Personal property is a good thing. And this is the principle that undergirds, underlies the Eighth Commandment. Christianity, in contrast to some other religions, does not glorify poverty and vagrancy in and of itself as some kind of extra-spiritual way of life. It does not glorify a kind of community life where personal property and possessions are dissolved into this single community purse, right? That, that is a kind of cultic impulse, a utopian impulse that we see historically, that cults seize upon this kind of thing. And what you see is a lot of creepy stuff happen when this, when this occurs, right? When, when the boundaries, the natural boundaries between one another when it comes to possessions and personal property are dissolved in the name of spirituality, well, then I can walk into your house and I can eat from your fridge, and I can sleep in your bed, and I can wear your clothes, because we're brother and sister. And that, that leads to all kinds of hor horrific, really, injustice, injustices. And so it's a perversion of God's ideal community. And so the first thing we see is that personal possessions are affirmed, and they underlie this, these commands. The second thing we see about property and possessions is that, yes, they're good, but they're also not ultimate. Right? They're good, but they're not God. 
and, and even below that. They're not even, yeah, they're not God, but they're not even up to the value of human life. They're not something that human life should be taken over. We see this in the text. In chapter 22, verse 2, we see that, that case in which it is permissible to kill someone who breaks in, but only at night. Right? Isn't that strange? It's really not that strange when you think about it, because what the text is saying is that this is the only situation in which you can kill someone, and it's not because they're stealing from you. It's because your life is potentially in danger. It's nighttime. It's confusing. It's dark. You have no idea whether your life is in jeopardy in the life of your family. So self-defense takes over, right? The realism of God's law comes to play here, and he says it's okay in that sense. There's no blood guilt if a person who breaks in at night is killed by your hand. But he says if it's daytime, it's murder. You killed someone who should not have been killed because life should not be taken for possessions. The value of human life does not come up to the value of even the possessions that are being stolen. Life is more valuable in God's economy. And so we see that in the text, and that even differentiates the law of God from other ancient Near Eastern laws where execution was the common response to theft. And so God's law is more restrained. God's law is more, is more I, I don't know what to say, it's more beautiful in that sense. It, it's, it makes this, it's that principle of, of just balances, right? The, the talion, right? The lex talion, that possess, possessions for possessions. He will surely pay, the text says. Not with his life, but with money. And if he can't pay, he shall be sold to make payment. And again, we have to make that adjustment between our context and their context, because in our context, we say a criminal pays his debt to society. But in their context, the criminal paid their debt through this means to the victim and fulfilled their debt in that way. And so we see this principle at work. And what it really teaches us is that though personal property and possessions are good, they're not to the level of human life. Human life should never be taken for, for the sake of property and possessions. And that implies that really even our own lives should not be given over and lost to the pursuit of possessions. So we see these two truths. And whenever these two truths are ignored, we, the result is injustice, historically speaking. But what happens when what rightly belongs to a person is wrongly taken? We consider that in our second point, wisdom and restitution. God's, God's law here deals with all the various ways in which possessions and property are lost, damaged, or taken. And what we see here is, again, noting that strife has the potential to break apart the community. And this reality, with possessions being at the center of division, is seen even in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, we see there Paul dealing with the Corinthian church. And in their church, they were defrauding one another. They were taking each other to court over petty things and over their possessions. And Paul said they were doing all this before unbelievers. It was like the, 
the world, the, the, the people in Corinth were watching Judge Judy. And it's like they're watching Judge Judy, which, you know, is aging me even. You know, Judge Judy is awesome, by the way. If, but they're watching Judge Judy, and they see, again, it's two Christians fighting it out. It's two Christians. They can't, they can't figure out how to, come to get, how to resolve their differences. And it's over something petty. It's over their, their possessions. They're squabbling. That's what we see in 1 Corinthians. And Paul says that it ought not to be so. You should know how to resolve these things. There should be someone wise among you. And so God's law here is, is doing that for Israel. It's showing them how to wisely deal with the different situations that can happen around possessions in community life. And the things we see here, there, there are really five different situations with different levels of liability that require different responses. And isn't that amazing that, that we see in God's law that there's not just this one-size-fits-all sledgehammer of justice that comes down when there's loss, when there's damage. There is nuance there's wisdom in dealing with all the differences. And so let's consider these five things. And really, these five situations can be applied to application to, to situations where there's strife among community life, among believers, whether possessions are present or not, whether it's about one thing or another. And so consider these different situations and the, the ways in which God holds some liable and the weight of that liability, and the proper response to it. And this is where the hard work comes in. So try to follow along. The first situation that we see in the text is that sometimes in Israel's community, things are taken There is from a person. There is loss. A person experiences loss, but there is no one liable for it. Okay, We see that in chapter 22, verse 10. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or a beast to keep safe and it dies or is driven away without anyone seeing it, verse 13, or if it is torn by beasts. In this situation, the one keeping the animals for someone, they can't be held responsible for what happened to it because it was completely outside of their control. They were not directly or indirectly responsible. It was just animals being animals. right? And and the person can't be held responsible for it. But our natural impulse, right, when something bad happens, when we experience loss, is we want to find someone to blame. And the, the wisdom of Scripture leads us to an, a, a certain amount of restraint to stop and say, wait, is this person really responsible? And so the proportionate response in this situation is no restitution. The loss must be absorbed. It's part of living in a fallen world. It's unfortunate. It's a bummer. But it happens. And the second thing we see, the second situation, are times when a person is partially or indirectly liable for a person's loss. It's even more nuanced. In chapter 21, verse 35, when a man's ox butts another so that it dies. Here we have animals being animals. But the animal belongs to someone. It belongs to this person. And so in that case, it would be wrong for the man to whom the animal belongs to simply turn his back on his neighbor and walk away and say, sorry about that. He, in this situation, is indirectly liable. And so he should recognize this 
the law really compels him to recognize this and to share in the burden of loss that this man now has to bear because his ox died. And so they split everything. Equality is the appropriate response. They split the live animal and they split the dead animal and they share equally in that burden of loss. The third situation we see is that sometimes a person is liable, but their actions are not criminal. They're liable for something, but their actions aren't actually criminal. This is the unfortunate but unavoidable accidents. Sorry, they're unfortunate but avoidable. It's a failure to take proper precautions that led to this kind of loss. We see that in... uh, Chapter 21, verse 33. And actually, this situation is the one that's most common in the text. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it. Or consider verse 36. When the owner of an ox knows that it is violent, but fails to keep it in, and it kills another man's ox. This situation reminds me of a time way back when I was like four years old or something. It's still still in there. It was that traumatic. Um, I was four years old, and the house that we lived in at the time, we had a lot of cats, man. We had a lot of cats, kittens, and they just kept having litters of kittens. It was constant. And so as kids, we would just always have a kitten, and we'd like name a kitten, and we'd keep a kitten, and we would give them away at some point. But we kind of adopted these little kittens, for a time. And one day, as our kittens were kind of wandering around the yard, a neighbor brought over her Doberman Pinscher. And, you know, (laughs) you should know that Doberman Pinschers and and kittens don't get along, right? And it was not on a leash. And so the Doberman Pinscher murders my kitten right in front of me. And the the vision of it is still there. No. (laughs) So this woman, did she know? Did she what? Did she intend on murdering my kitten? Did she say, "Oh man, this kid has a kitten. It's so cute, and I'm going to go over there and murder it"? Obviously not. She came over with zero intention to kill my kitten, and yet it happened, and it was her dog, and she was liable for it. She didn't do. She didn't put the dog on a leash. That's what the old covenant would say. That's what the te- that that's what God's law would say. She's responsible, and to this day, she owes me a kitten. <laughs> so there are all kinds of situations that that the text reveals to us here. Like in 22 verse 5, if if a man lets his animals graze in his neighbor's field, or if he a person starts a fire that burns their neighbor's field, or if a person agrees to guard his neighbor's goods but it's stolen under his watch. These kind of instances, they are not criminal, but the person is fully liable, and therefore it's incumbent upon them to repair the damage, to take ownership of that liability and say, here's what I need to repay to you. I need to make restitution. That's what God's law demands in that situation. And then fourth, sometimes there is criminal liability, and that's the easiest case, open and shut theft. Right? And the proportionate response for this is that the, the, vic, the, the thief is paying full compensation to the victim, but then also punitive damages, what we call punitive damages, which is really that 
this cost on top of compensation that is paid to the victim. And that is to, to deter thieves from actually stealing. Because if a thief only had to give back what they stole, what would happen? They would keep trying, trying, and trying. Oh, I just give it back. Let me try something else. And, and there would never be a deterrent for that behavior. And so it makes sense that there would be punitive damages paid to an actual thief with malicious intent. They must be resisted. They must be punished. Discipline. And lastly, and probably the most difficult situation for us to understand how it's dealt with in Israel's life, is um, that sometimes there is no human court that can actually figure out who's at fault. It's just too messy, right? And we see that in chapter 22, verses 7 through 9. That situation that if a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, but then those items suddenly disappear. They're gone. What happened to them? One party claims they were stolen. The other party says, no, I'm being falsely accused, and that guy's playing the system. He wants a restitution payment. He's hiding stuff. How do you know? It, and, and in that situation, the people come near to God, the text says. Some translate, translate the Hebrew word there, Elohim, which is translated God in the ESV. Some translate it judges, which is doable. It's a bit interpretive. But what probably is happening in Israel's life is that this case is going to the Supreme Court, really. It's going to God. The people are brought to the temple, and some, in some way, God is able, if he chooses, to reveal who is at fault in some way that we're not really made aware of in this text. The two parties are placed under oath, and if God does reveal who's guilty, well, they pay double. If God doesn't reveal who's guilty, then the matter rests with God. And, the, and really, justice is given to him to work out in his own way and in his own time, because God is able to do that kind of thing. And so that's all the various levels that we see in the text broken down. Different levels of liability require different levels of response and restitution. What does that teach us as God's covenant people bound together that mix and mingle and hurt each other and can damage each other intentionally or unintentionally? It means that we need to have a heart of restraint and wisdom when it comes to all of these situations we may face. That's what God's law is teaching us, that we, could, that we should stop and seek to discern all the various factors that play into liability and who's at fault so that we can make a wise conclusion. We can come to a wise conclusion and respond appropriately. We don't always have to find someone to blame if there's really not someone to blame. And we don't have to punish someone if they actually simply need to make basic restitution and just repair the damage done. Right? There's all kinds of ways in which this applies to our family, community, life together. But what the principle is for us is that we need to recognize that there's no one-size-fits-all to arguments and strife within the church. And it requires hard work sometimes to know how to respond appropriately to hurt and loss. And so that's what we learn from the text, when the Eighth Commandment, when we find ourselves on the 
wrong side of the Eighth Commandment violations and all that surrounds the loss of property and things like that. But the last thing we need to consider to be faithful to this text and to the law is this final thing, the movement from Old Covenant to New Covenant. How does this law of possessions and the Eighth Commandment come into its own in the New Covenant? Or does it change at all? Consider the law and the Spirit. We know that the Eighth Commandment forbids taking stuff, right? That's just easy enough. It's plain and simple. But what does the law actually require positively? Does it require anything positively? We see a hint that it actually does in the text itself. See, if, I, if I'm an Israelite and I dig a ditch, the text says, I should think about my neighbor. If I am an Israelite and I know my ox is violent, I should consider my neighbor and how that ox might affect my neighbor. If I let my animals graze, if I'm just like, I'm just too tired to deal with putting them in right now, I should think about how that's going to affect my neighbor. If I'm working with fire, which is super dangerous in the ancient world, I should think about the precautions that need to be taken. I should think about my neighbor how my actions are going to affect my neighbor. And so the spirit of the Eighth Commandment we see is actually deeper than the mere prohibition to not take stuff. The spirit of the Eighth Commandment actually involves active consideration of the good and the welfare of our neighbor and actively seeking to protect and guard their welfare, their well-being. That's the spirit of the Eighth Commandment. It's not just that we owe our neighbors compensation when we are personally responsible for their loss. It's that we owe our neighbors consideration before that loss even happens, before anything even occurs. We owe our neighbors consideration. We owe our brothers and sisters that much. And so... Even as we seek to better our own lives, we're called to promote and protect the lives of our brothers and sisters. This is really nothing less than the command that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the fulfillment of the Eighth Commandment. And we see this in Romans 13 where Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for love is the fulfillment of the law. All the commandments, you shall not steal, you shall not murder. Love does no wrong to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is really what we owe to each other. It's really our basic moral obligation to each other. It's not extra credit. It's our basic obligation to consider each other. American materialistic individualism, it really... I don't even need American individualism. I have my own corrupt heart. It teaches me that I only have obligations to me and mine, to me and my family. That's my only obligation. Everything else is cut off right there. That's the boundary line. No obligation. That's not what Christianity teaches. And the book of the covenant here for Israel 
actually compelled Israelites to fulfill the most basic, elementary requirements of love. They were in the school, the kindergarten of love. They were being compelled to it by the law, externally. It stood over them, telling them, do what's right by your neighbor. Do love. Don't defraud. Make your restitution payments. But what happens in the new covenant when love itself and all of its fullness and beauty and glory comes down and is incarnate and walks among us? What does that look like? Does that change anything in our perception of what love really means? Because for Israel, love looked a lot like mere equity. It looked a lot like just doing right by your neighbor, not hurting your neighbor, protecting what belongs to them. But what happens when love comes down and actually gives himself for us? That's where we see the fullest expression of the fulfillment of the Eighth Commandment. When God fulfilled the Eighth Commandment on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ, it's not that he just didn't take stuff from us. It's that he gave himself for us. When we had taken from him, we were the thieves. We took from him. We took his crown. We took his throne for ourselves. And instead of requiring restitution from our hands, he gave himself for us. That's what the gospel teaches us. That's Now love has completely exploded into a fullness that goes beyond what the Old Testament could have revealed in these case laws. And that affects how we, how we go about doing justice and living just lives today. It's not that it does away, that Christ's coming does away with the obligation to love one another. It fills it out for us. And the, the curse that was upon us for failing to love dissolves. It's gone. And so now we are actually set free from the law so we can do the law. Do what the law requires. The very heart of it. Not the, just the elementary principles. And what's at the heart of the law? Generosity. Giving. Giving is the fulfillment of the law. Giving is how this law comes to its fullest expression in new covenant life. And that kind of giving that is not just a civic obligation to each other. It's a different kind of giving. We see an example of the movement of this ethos from kindergarten to maturity. We see an example of it in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul there speaks of a group of believers called the Macedonians, and he, these Macedonians were impoverished. And yet they heard that believers in Jerusalem were suffering. They had experienced loss. They had experienced a famine. And so what did these impoverished Macedonian believers do in response to that? Were they responsible for this famine? Did they have any responsibility for, what these, for the loss that these believers in Jerusalem were experiencing? Not at all. But they had obligations to them. They, hadn't, they felt inwardly an obligation to do something. And so it said, Paul says, they begged me to let them give to this need. 
That is the work of the Spirit applying the gospel of a God who gave himself for them. It's out of the overflow of the joy and the celebration of the gospel that they were led to this kind of generosity that goes beyond the kindergarten requirements of the law, but actually gets to the very heart of the law. As Paul says in Ephesians 25 or 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something. Does he stop there? Is the fulfillment of the law against theft that we work really hard and save our money so we can have something so we don't need to steal? No. Paul doesn't stop there. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The law is not fulfilled merely by working hard and not stealing from others. The law is fulfilled, the spirit of the law, the the heart of the law is fulfilled by giving because Christ gave himself for us. And brothers and sisters, we are not compelled to this kind of fulfillment of the law from outside. With a law written on stone, etched in stone, with threat of judgment for disobedience, we are compelled to this kind of giving, this kind of fulfillment of the law from within, from a different kind of law, from the law by the law of the spirit of life in Christ, where there is no condemnation, but freedom to love and serve God, to live for him, and to live for, in a sense, our brothers and sisters. And so may God give us wisdom to know how to apply the just principles that we see here in the law, but that are now infused by the new life of the Spirit in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beauty of it, the wisdom of it. Help us to apply it to our lives in whatever ways that we need to for the good of our neighbor, for our good, and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.